Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Montpelier Happy Hour. I am your host, Olga Peters. I am recording this at the moment on Friday morning from the back porch of my friend's house in West Brattleboro. I hope you can hear some of the birds in the background and uh, enjoy that just a little bit as I am in this moment. I share that with you as illustration of the fact that Emily and I needed a little more time to lay low and recover after the really amazing, wonderful experience of the Governor's Institute. And I'm so impressed with the 55 students who spent the 10 days with us. <sighs> but yes, we need a little more downtime. So please enjoy this rebroadcast from February with Amy Schollenberger of the political strategy firm Action Circles, where we talk about the people's budget. And the reason I chose this one is Amy was also a teacher at the Governor's Institute last week, and I thought it would be a nice way to honor her. Take care, everybody. I hope you're staying cool in the heat, and we shall talk again soon. Have a great weekend. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm the host and producer of the show, Olga Peters, and this is where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. And streaming in person from Montpelier, Representative Emily Kornheiser, one of three reps from the town of Brattleboro. Hello, Emily. Good morning, Olga. Nice to see you. Good to see you too. And thank you, Amy Schollenberger, for joining us. For those who don't know Amy, she's the founder of Action Circles, which is a political strategy firm in Montpelier and works with many clients who, who have budget concerns, which is what we will be talking about today. So Emily, thank you. For, uh, Emily, Amy, Thank you for joining today's show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So folks, I am so glad Emily and Amy are here because I had one of my curiosity moments while the governor was giving his budget address last month, thinking about the budget and how it's built and all the needs people have in Vermont. And then thinking back to, I think it was about 2012, there was the people's budget movement. And there was actually some language put in statue about how the budget should be built. And I was thinking about all of that and wondering what happened to, quote unquote, the people's budget. And are we actually creating a people's budget and what that would look like? So thank you, Amy and Emily. And they're going to indulge me briefly because I'm going to quickly read from Vermont statue about like, how the budget is supposed to be built and some of the things that should be considered when the lawmakers are, are building the budget. So this is Title 32 in Vermont statutes, uh, taxation and finance. The state budget consistent with the Vermont's constitution should be instituted for the common benefit, protection and security of the people, nation or community. The state budget should be designed to address the needs of the people of Vermont in a way that advances human dignity and equity and in a manner that supports the population level outcomes set forth in statute. Spending and revenue policies will seek to promote economic well-being among the people of Vermont, 
and foster a vibrant economy. The use of public funds by systems of outcome measurement based on indicators that measure success in accomplishing the purposes of the state budget. Spending and revenue policies will reflect the public policy goals established in state law and recognize every person's need for health, housing, dignified work, education, food, secu social security, and a healthy environment. As consistent with state law and in conjunction with the federal government, the budget will reflect support for economic development, public safety, transportation, and other infrastructure needs. Revenue measures shall also be based on the principles of sustainability and stability. The administration shall develop budget and revenue proposals as part of a transparent and accountable process. And this I found interesting, with direct and meaningful participation from Vermont residents. Whew. So there you have statute. Thank you for listening to me to me read. I felt a little bit like I was back in elementary school. But Amy, Emily, who wants to go first? Like when you hear that the words I just read, does that feel how the budget process goes? Does that feel how we're we're making our budgets? Are we taking people into consideration? Well, I'll just say I love that you read that. <laughs> I, I've been reading it a lot lately um, to help my clients figure out how to talk to legislators about their budget requests and, and the needs of the people that they serve. And that language is really helpful to, to say, you know, this is a commitment the state has made and it's actually the law. And, you know, this is how we're proposing that you support these commitments. I will say that it's not 100% how the budget is produced. And I don't think it's anyone's fault. I, I want to be clear about that. I think the systems and structures that have been in place for years, and also a real mindset of scarcity that built up, especially in my time during the 2008 recession, mm -hmm. recovery from that recession, really limits people's ability to think about needs first and then revenue. It, so it's not necessarily for lack of commitment or desire, but I think it's a lack of discipline and practice and mm -hmm. not a lot of support for the legislators who are often on tight timelines to be practicing and being disciplined uh, and being supported in that work. And so I think a lot of times what I tell my clients is that's our job. Our job is to support mm -hmm. them when they're willing to do that work and to help them think about how to do it and to help them think about how to bring these concepts into the conversation. But, but it's really hard. Amy, I... I really appreciated that refresh of the statutory language. I was also looking at some of it yesterday um, at lunchtime and then hearing the debate and participating in the debate on budget adjustment yesterday, which is a sort of a stark reminder of where some priorities are. But you said sort of these principles or these practices, Amy, and I'd love for you to sort of explain a little bit more about what you mean by that. 
Yeah, so just to highlight a few things, one of the things that's required, as you mentioned, Olga, and highlighted is a public participation process. Right. And that's required uh, for the governor when he he's currently, he, he is uh, building his budget. And what the governor, all the governors since this law was put into statute have done is an online web form. And mm -hmm. it's fairly unsatisfactory for the people who are filling it out. It's hard to think that it's meaningful contribution. On the plus side, administration officials do testify that they read all of the comments in the finance uh, department, and also they share those comments with the appropriate secretaries and commissioners, and they are supposed to be reading them. Uh, so at least they're aware of the feedback. However, I have not seen in in all of the times that I know that people have been submitting comments. And this is not just with Governor Scott. Governor Shumlin was also in office when this law was in effect. So it's been about the same. There hasn't been any tangible result in the governor's budget proposal based on those comments. Mm -hmm. And one thing I want to flag is part of the reason for that is because that comment portal, they call it a portal, goes live usually right around between Halloween and Thanksgiving. And the administration has already been doing boatloads of work on the budget by the time that portal goes live. And so oh, wow. Even if they want it to incorporate the comments that are coming in, it's pretty late in the process for that, especially in um, an election year, especially if there's a new governor, it will be even later because by the time they get their office up and running and, and their administration even picked, <laughs> you know, it's a very crunch time. So that part is really not super useful. The appropriations committees also do public hearings on the budget where people get two between two and three minutes to offer comments. That also usually happens the week that the House Appropriations Committee is almost done with their budgets, usually like the week before they wrap it up. So it's also not really impactful other than maybe it might be validating if they're already thinking about putting a request in that's not in the governor's budget. We've talked on the show so much about like which point in the participation timeline is actually meaningful, right? Like even when we've talked about right. a meeting or a select board meeting, it's the structuring of the agenda when participation is meaningful. And once the decisions are set, people are just weighing in on yes or no at that point or like nibbling around the edges. It's not that's not participation, that's commentary, right? Right, and one thing I'll highlight is our, our strategy for getting money in the budget, which we've actually been fairly successful at with our clients, is do all the things, right? So we, we suggest to our clients that they do submit comments on the governor's budget, they do show up for the public hearings, they do talk to the committees and get in their budget memos, they do talk to each appropriations committee member, and that's because my experience with the budget process is it's last man standing. Mm, so interesting. We have this thing called the request list. 
they write down everything they hear. Like the appropriations committees are very open to hearing requests. That's been true historically for the past, at least the past five chairs of House Appropriations. There's only been one chair of Senate Appropriations the whole time. But she also keeps a request list and they make sure they have everybody's request. And then they just keep checking, like, does it show up in the public hearing? Does it show up in the committee memo? Does it show up? And so they're crossing things off that don't show up. And if you're still on the request list, when they get to the last bit where they find out how much money they have left, you have a chance. <laughs> and that, you know, that's, in my opinion, a pretty brutal way to build a people's budget. Yeah, that is brutal. It's it's once I'm always amazed at the number of processes in our policy building process that are kind of like King of the Hill or King of the Mountain. I don't know if you ever played that game as a kid. I did. Where you'd climb to the top of the snow pile and then push everyone off to see who could who could stay at the top of the snow pile. I would watch other um, people playing yeah. and like hang out with my like hopscotch. In the we corner. actually played on a sliding board, and that's how I broke my arm as a kid. <laughs> oh, no. See, it's a Well, I did fall off. Okay. They dragged me with them. Um, and for radio listeners, I just want to, and podcast listeners, I just want to um, let folks know that Amy and I are actually in the same room with Olga in a different room. And so I think that might sort of change the sound dynamics for regular listeners. And just want to mm. let you know that that was the visual of what you're hearing on the audio. You know, this participation idea, the idea that like we are existing and trying to govern in complex systems, right? Where certain decisions we make will have knock-on effects out into the universe and into the other systems, but we're creating budgets with recommendations from siloed committees on a single list, not looking at the interactive effects between those items, you know, even yesterday in the budget adjustment debate, we, the appropriations committee had put forward a budget adjustment that put significant money into continuing to fund emergency housing and the motel programs mm -hmm. through the spring, as well as significant money for VHCB to be building permanent and transitional housing. And there was sort of a debate about like, well, shouldn't we just put all the money into permanent housing from the Republican debate is sort of a, I think debate might be too generous a term for what happened yesterday, but I'm going to call it a debate. Should we put more money into, should it all go into emergency housing? What are sort of the causes and correlations between some of the challenges that communities have experienced near the motels? And like, is it to be blamed on the motels? Is it to be blamed on the poor people? Is it just like all homelessness creates crime? And it was really like a fairly gnarly conversation to not blow my top at. But um, what it pointed to for me is that like, we're not very practiced at talking about complex systems and their interactions. Mm -hmm. Or from hearing from those folks who are like most impacted in a dynamic way, like we might hear from a police chief, but are we having a police chief have a conversation at the same table with a person experiencing homelessness and a person providing services all together in order to create those budget conversations. And Amy, I can't figure out how we would. Like I mm. think of myself as a person with a very active imagination and 
maybe I like, even in my four years, I've just like been sitting in these weird little square rooms with the rectangular tables too long, but yeah, I have trouble imagining a participatory budgeting process. Well, I think- Amy, can I jump in quickly? Sorry, I just, uh, one clarifying question for Emily before we go on. When you're talking about the budget adjustment, Mm -hmm. Are you talking about a current budget or what the governor put forward oh. for his budget? Just to clarify that, please. Sorry, technical, legislative, um, jargon, alert. jargon alert, explanation. <laughs> so um, budget adjustment is something that happens um, right at the very beginning of every legislative session. So we are halfway through the fiscal year, right, in January. We get a new revenue update. I think last year, last week we talked about the e-board meeting or the week before that. So we get a new revenue update. We find out how much revenue we have that we didn't think we were gonna have in this current year that we are all living in, not a future year, this year. And we hear from all of the departments and all the programs about have they actually been able to spend the money that they spent. And so it's a mid-year true up. Like, is there money that's not being spent that needs to be moved somewhere else? Is there money that like someone needs to be encouraged to spend a little bit faster? And is there money we didn't know we had that we could spend? Pre-pandemic times, this was like a fairly technical. technical and not very dynamic process where people, like it was mostly just the budget committee, the appropriations committee that paid attention and the other committees barely even needed to weigh in beyond just like programs that had sort of failed that shouldn't have. Or but, sometimes it was more people showed up for help than they expected and yeah. needed to move some money mm -hmm. into a different pot. But since we've had all of this unexpected revenue and spending at a scale for departments who might not have been ready to spend at that scale and all of those things, um, it's a huge amount of money that we're moving around for budget adjustment. And so it's like it's like a mini budget at this point with like some really urgent needs that are being named. Um, we put a lot of money into um, emergency relief for organic dairy right this time. So it becomes like almost an exercise in the rig. It becomes essentially the same, both politically and technically as the budget, except it happens in the course of like three weeks. And this time around, it happened with an appropriations committee that um, was really brand, brand new. new. <laughs> I experienced chair. And a, and a couple other experienced members, but some actually brand new members on appropriation, Ooh. newly elected. So it was that like- sounds intense. It was a wild journey. Um, and I think it was, you know, reflected some like really core values that I was like really hurting to see put in there. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Emily. And Amy, thank you for, for letting me interrupt. No, that's important that people understand what's going on. So yeah, to go back to- Emily's question about the structure, I think the thing to remember is that the structure was designed by older white men in power who wanted to keep power sitting with them, right? So, and at the time, you know, there was no question that that was the wrong thing to do, probably in their minds. They thought they were the right people to be leading us forward into the future. This, this structure was created, what, 200 years ago? <laughs> and it works. It works to keep power in the hands of a few people. However, one thing that I love about the rules of how the committees work in the State House is there's always a way 
without breaking the rules to shift the power in the room. And I've seen some masterful um, examples of this over my years as you know, working in this building, both from legislators and from advocates, but it's very dangerous to do it, right? So even though you're not breaking the rules when you're doing certain, you know, motions or procedures, people don't necessarily know that because they don't know the rules for the most part. And also the people in power don't like it, right? So often there's afterwards consequences for the person or people who took that chance to, for instance, override a chair with a vote or to have a committee hearing without the chair because the chair wouldn't do it. Or these are examples I've seen in my life or to make a motion on the floor to pull a bill out of committee, even though the votes weren't there to move it out of the committee. You can do that. You can. I didn't know that one. Or to send Ooh. it back to committee if it's on the floor to move it back to the committee or to lay it on the table indefinitely or to take it off the table if it's sitting on the table. Um, there are a lot of different ways to make things happen. And usually you need a lot of extra votes to do all of these things. And so you have to work really hard to convince people that it's worth it. And sometimes it's worth it and sometimes it's not. But the structure is designed to make it very difficult for people like the folks Emily was talking about to be heard, right? Because it's mm -hmm. there's a few people in the building who have the power to decide who gets to speak, literally. They have right. to call on people. If they don't call on you, you can't speak. So I think that if you really wanna get to that creative and real public participation, you either have to go outside of that structure and that's been happening more in the caucuses. So there's a, there are more and more caucuses and more of the caucuses are allowing non-legislators to participate in meaningful ways. So that's helpful. And I think also some legislators are just spending more time meeting with people individually or going on field trips or you know, having coffee hours, like I'm seeing more and more and more of that. And I think that's great and also kind of a shame because that's uncompensated work for the legislators mm -hmm. who are willing to do that. And they're not compensated that much in the first place for the work they're supposed to be doing in the state house. And so it doesn't necessarily make it possible for that to be a regular thing because only the people who can afford to do that or who are willing to do it, even though they can't afford it, are the ones that are participating in these things. I um, remember my first year, I think I was trying to understand some piece of the budget, like really right before the budget vote. And I asked someone on the appropriations committee, like, where is this and how do I find it? Cause there's like, there's Lots a spreadsheet, but then there's like, if there's a lot of documents and they're all coded, and they told me, and then I was like, so how do I find that for myself next time? Because like, I like to be able to figure my own stuff out. And they said, oh no, like the whole thing is designed so that like even regular members can't like ascertain how to find stuff. <laughs> like, that's like, and that person, and like, you know, for, that was Matt Treber, represented from Rockingham, who was like, you know, both like dark humored and frank. The, also the person who told me that I have to be willing to drown my babies in a bathtub. I think maybe that same week, but 
like the fact that that was just sort of said aloud by someone who had been on the appropriations committee for quite a long time and is still like, I still find that to be true. Like it's fairly incomprehensible how to find mm -hmm. something in there. I will just put a plug in that we sometimes do webinars about how to find things in the budget. Ah, uh, and is that on uh, Action Circles websites or yeah. yes. where they can people can find? Yeah, okay, we don't have I'll any sure scheduled at this moment, but um, we do often offer them. And also, if you're a person and you're trying to find something in particular, often you can just email me and I'll help you. Thanks, Amy. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's Thank you. And then the other piece sort of of that, like to build on what you said, Amy, I was talking to one of your colleagues yesterday about participation and like letting Vermonters know about what we were doing and just like how we even talk about the budget and revenue in like a way that was meaningful to anyone outside of this building. And one, they seemed like surprised and excited that I was like, yes, I want to do all of those things. <laughs> And then I was like, I can't do that by myself. Like I can't write, I can't, I already spend my whole weekend like catching up on emails and like writing things so that they sound reasonable to normal people. But like I need, I think a huge number of my colleagues would be willing to sort of spread that information to start talking about things in a way that was accessible if we had the human capacity to do that. And so like, we don't have communication staff. We don't have, um, political staff. And so the governor is like constant, and like, you know, not just the governor, but like a number of people in power are putting forward this constant scarcity narrative related to our budgeting process. And it takes effort to draft communications that don't come from that frame because we all default back to that frame because we've yeah. all been living in this America for a long time. And so to like actually do the work to just even write and share and communicate with constituents from that perspective takes like a certain degree of effort. And so like, even if we just had like more materials floating around the universe for us to talk about things that way, yeah, that would make a big difference. That's true. I, you know, it's definitely something we work on, Yeah, but it's, it's like walking into a 10 foot wave. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the scarcity mindset is crashing over your head and you're saying wait no there's actually plenty of money out there and I just want to flag that there is actually plenty of money out there so we have more revenues coming in than we've ever had right now and you might have read some scary news articles about future years there's going to be less money um, but I keep telling people, but I was in the e-board meeting and Kornheiser said, wait a minute, it's going down from an all-time high. <laughs> it's still <laughs> higher than it was before, right? And mm -hmm. so it's it's not like we're up here and we're going to go boom like that and not have any money again. We're, it's a slow ride down. And even the economists are saying, we don't actually know if that's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Because we're living in an economy we've never lived in before. But what That's they feel fairly point. clear about is like, when we do come down from this all time high, it's going to be at a base that was much higher than before the pandemic that will continue an upward trajectory. And so the idea that we're like hoarding extra money for this rainy day that like no one's actually talking about coming. No one, there are like really very few indicators to point to any recession on the horizon. 
And yet like somehow there's just like this desperate fear that we need to be like acting like dragons. I just, and really hard. I just want to point out that the yes. last House Appropriations Chair, actually Kitty Toll, was obsessed with the rainy day fund and filled it up. So it's full <laughs> already. There's so we have a rainy day fund. <laughs> waiting for a rainy day. And, you know, I just think the there's more likelihood of a rainy day happening if we're not taking care of our people, because that's the crisis that's looming. It's not a lack of money that's looming. What's looming is that so many pieces of our government functions have been underfunded for so many years and nobody is doing the assessment to see what do we actually need to do to bring our government up to working order. And I'll say, frankly, Amy, I ask, I've asked community partners a few times. I've said, so I know that you keep on saying that you need more money. I hear you need more money. I also know you're not meeting your contractual obligations because you can't because you don't have enough money to do that. Can you tell me how much money you would need to meet your contractual obligations? And they can't give me a number. My clients can. I'm sure they can. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like it's like when I ask that question it's like I'm like blowing up the room and I'm like I just I like I just need a goal people like I'm not saying I can like deliver it tomorrow if you tell me but like can we even just like imagine what sufficiency would look like because it's true like the crisis that we experienced during the pandemic for individuals was because people had no savings and people didn't have secure homes and because we didn't have the social infrastructure in place to deal with an emergency. If we, you know, there's so many aspects of even this, like the wildness of the pandemic that would have been so much more stable for people if we had comprehensive functioning family medical leave and a really robust, resilient childcare system. And like just so many places that were afraid, just afraid in the unemployment office. And like functioning IT equipment throughout all of state government. Yes. like. And so, yeah, it's true. Like that's the rainy day. The rainy day is that like the duct tape and bailing twine that holds the state together just like finally gives out rather than a rainy day that's about, you know, rich people getting slightly less rich. Amy, Emily, thank you. Uh, that was such a great, great thoughts to end this first half of the show on. Unfortunately, uh, we have to hear, not unfortunately, but unfortunately we have to end the conversation for a moment and then hear from our underwriters on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. We will be right back. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW. 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on BCTV, and thanks to BCTV, you can also find us on many of the peg stations around Vermont and a little other places in New England. You can find us wherever you want to subscribe to your podcasts. And in fact, if there's any listeners who listen to us through Podcast Addict, addict they've been reaching out to me and i see some listeners on there but i don't know much about the service so i would love to hear more about it drop us a line at the montpelier happy hour at gmail.com and i just want to quickly say i know we're in the middle of a cold snap here on friday february 3rd for our listeners in brattleboro on wvew just a reminder if you need a warming uh, center 
the uh, Brattleboro Recreation and Parks on Main Street, so that's the Gibson-Aiken Center, is open. Brooks Library, Groundworks, as well as Youth Services. You can um, go there for some reason. Your house isn't warm enough or if you should lose power. And then, of course, there's also Vermont211.org where you can find more resources as well. So stay warm, everybody. Check on your neighbors and uh, bundle up if you have to go outside. Emily, mm -hmm. what do we need to remind listeners of? The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, respectively, and not the station, nor the platform, nor their employers, nor friends, just them. Why, thank you. Mm -hmm. And guest Amy Schollenberger, founder of Action Circles in Montpelier. So glad you are with us. A question for you. You know, we've been talking about budgeting and how we budget to people's needs rather than just budgeting to revenue. And I was curious, do you, does your organization or do you know of any organizations who has kind of built that, for lack of a better term, people's budget? you know, looked at the needs out there for housing and food and healthcare and said, this is, this is actually the budget we need if we were to fund government. I don't think anyone needs to comprehensively. I think I'm in a lot of rooms where a lot of conversations are happening. And I think you know, before COVID estimates of needing another billion dollars or so in in the revenue stream were kind of floating around. And I think COVID showed us that we can get pretty far with a billion dollars <laughs> um, if we're <laughs> investing it well in the people. But that would need to be base funding, right? Not one-time funding that is fixing Band-Aids, as mm -hmm. um, Emily was saying earlier. But I do know that you know, we work with our clients, you know, before the break, we were talking about people who come in and they say, you know, we need more money, but they don't necessarily know how much and they don't know what that would do for the people that they serve. And that makes it difficult for legislators to know whether they should be funding it or not, right? So, and that's part of the whole structure and system. It's nobody's fault. I just want to keep saying that. <laughs> it, you know, if it is somebody's fault, it's like somebody a long time ago's fault. But it's hard to break through that, right? And so what we do with our clients is we walk them through an exercise, which first they have to, in their own nonprofits, break out of the scarcity mindset because they are also budgeting to revenue because that's what they have to do because they only have so much revenue. They have to serve all the people that walk through their door. A lot of times our clients are providing entitlement services, so they can't turn people away. You know, they, an entitlement means by law, if you ask for the service, you need to be provided the service, but the state isn't necessarily providing the money for that service. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, it, it falls on the back of the people who work at that nonprofit because their salaries are too low so they can pay for the services, right? And that it's a vicious doom spiral, as my son would say. So, you know, what we do first with our clients is we say, okay, let's build a budget that, you know, if you were paying your staff people competitive wages to provide the services, because we're talking human resources with most of our clients, so they need people to provide those services. If you were paying competitive wages, market rate wages, and you had enough staff to provide those services, so you're fully staffed, and you had operating expenses, 
and you had the equipment and the IT and the building space well maintained with appropriate HVAC systems that you need, you know, how much would that cost? And that's often a very difficult exercise for people mm -hmm. because they're scared to see that number because they don't believe they can get to that number. And so they don't want to put it on paper and they don't want to, you know, they don't want their staff to start dreaming about getting paid a livable wage, for instance. But we do that exercise and it's just a spreadsheet, people filling in numbers, you know, and real numbers. We make them actually show us like, how did you come up with this number? And then that's the number we come to the legislature with for a specific service provider. So these are all nonprofit agencies who have contracts with the state to provide services on behalf of the state, right? These aren't, our clients are not sort of people who are just like, I just want to do this awesome program. Will you give me some money? They're actual service providers. Many of them have line items in the budget and they come up with that number. And then we come in and it really helps legislators who want to help us to know we can show our math. You know, it's not just a napkin with some sketches and it's not just a meeting we had where somebody was like, well, is 10 million like do you think we could ask for 10 million? Because I go to those meetings too. And I'm like, I don't know, do the math. <laughs> and then our champions feel confident when they go to their colleagues and say, you know, the parents' health centers need $10 million. They know that's true because we did the analysis and we can show them the spreadsheet. And they don't feel like they're going to get blindsided by some crazy math question that they can't answer. So we really encourage all organizations to do that. And so we have, you know, this huge proportion of our state services are provided by contracted partners in that way. I think calling it a partner is like really misunderstanding of power dynamics, mm. but that's what we call them. Yes. But then we have sort of, you know, genuine state government with folks who work directly for the state. And in those situations, trying to ask those questions is even harder because folks in the administration mm. are actually prohibited from answering my direct question about how many resources do you need? And so- Whoa, 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 Is this a Scott administration or an administration rule in general? In general, uh, people who work for the administration work for the governor. So they have to follow the governor's position, whatever it is. And so, you know, just yesterday, that's I would, great for conversation. Yes. <laughs> so, I, you know, yesterday we were, you know, had a committee meeting. We were talking about how a bunch of different things worked, but sort of in the process of that, someone asked about some delays in processing times. And the, you know, the administrator there said, yes, you know, with the increased need, we haven't been able to meet our goals. And I said, do you need more staff to do your work with? <laughs> which was like clearly what they had just said. I was just sort of repeating it. And they said, well, no, we need more capacity. And I was like, oh, what kind of, <laughs> what kind of capacity is that? And they said, well, we just need to do things. Sounds like, smells quickly. like, tastes like. <laughs> yeah, and you know, sure, maybe like 20 years ago, more capacity might mean getting a little bit more efficient, but like we are so far, like we have scraped the efficiency marrow out of every piece of like the government skeleton like there is no more efficiency to be gained at this point we are losing efficiency because of how few staff are doing the work but we can't you know i 
as a legislator who's deeply interested in like fully funding government services, without partners in the administration, I am really at a total loss of how to do that beyond just sort of like raising money with a clear understanding that the more money I raise, the more it will be spent on something good because I trust the appropriations committee to do that. And I think without like a really comprehensive budget public, like participatory budgeting process, I'm sure we're leaving a lot of people out of the process who don't know how to find Amy or don't know how to hire Amy or don't know have a legislator who like really knows how to work the system. And when I, you know, we have these budget hearings, I have like a cute little graphic that I can like post up on Instagram about the hearings. Like, I, you know, I know that if I was me a decade ago, I would have just scrolled on past that. I wouldn't have like, you know, showed up to tell my welfare story. Like it's not, it's not really a safe space. No. For a lot of and it's recorded. <laughs> You know, so that that's something that we're, you know, that's something I think about a lot is how to make that space safer for people. And we do a lot of things like prepping people, telling them what it's going to look like when they get there. Sometimes I'll go, sometimes we'll have people go sit next to them, which is not really allowed, but we'll do it anyway. Sometimes we'll talk to the chair if there's a special need or something, but that's like one-on-one -on -one advocacy, right? And it's not something where the structure is set up to welcome people in. You know, like there are, for instance, sign language interpreters available, but it's not easy to know that or get one <laughs> and you have to do it ahead of time. And there's not often a lot of notice for the budget public hearing. Sometimes it's only two days. So even if you know you can get one, you might, and you go through the process, you might not get one in time, right? And so I think there's just like a lot of unraveling that would need to happen to make it truly inclusive and truly participatory. And I think it would need to question the entire structure of how decisions are made, you know. And then again, that goes back to like, what are we actually expecting from basically a volunteer core of legislators, right? Who this is meant to be a part-time job. It's not a part-time job already. And also because we have a, a, a legislature made up of regular people from all walks of life, some of them have facilitation skills and some of them don't. And some of them have more experience being inclusive and welcoming and some of them don't. And you know, what is it realistic to expect from people and what kinds of support would they need? And where would they get it from? Mm -hmm. I am always amazed at, you know, Vermont has run on volunteer labor in so many aspects of its public life. And I think there was a, a time in Vermont's history where that actually made sense based on population and based on how complex our systems were. But our systems have become so complex and our challenges are so complex that I'm just amazed at what we expect people to do with very little assistance and very little compensation in, in many forms, however you want to define compensation. And I really, I would love to see just more robust support for, for folks at all levels of public life. 
Yeah, I mean, I want to, so in terms of sort of as a legislator and my capacity, I would love to have health insurance and I would love to get paid for the full-time work that I'm doing. And I am absolutely doing this full-time, but that wouldn't actually be enough for me to shift this. What I would need is like mm. robust staff capacity and the ability to engage with like a wide swath of my community in a way that they would have the ability to show up as well. Mm -hmm. And so part of that is just like shifting there, you know, I really do believe that until we can shift the economy so everyone is sort of economically secure, it's gonna be really hard to have robust participation because people are too busy struggling for the most mm -hmm. part to show up for stuff. But it's also like, you know, making sure that people are compensated for their participation time at whatever level and supported in it, you know, like I have, I have a friend from Brattleboro who came up in an absolutely like salaried professional capacity to testify this week. And she'd never come up before. And we spent like a long time on the phone, me talking her through like what it would look like to walk in the building. I met her at the front door. I showed her to the committee room. I showed her where the coat, like, and she's like a fully, you know, comfortable middle-class professional who's like been in a million meeting rooms in her life. And she's still um, was incredibly intimidated by the process. She also now is like absolutely hopelessly in love and like maybe we'll run for office and like thought it was <laughs> but like there's velvet chairs and these like terrifying old men in portraits hanging on the wall and like until you have someone showing you that it's just another place it's really hard for it to feel that way. Lots of closed doors. A lot of closed doors and all of them can be opened like everyone has the right to open and close any of the doors in this building anytime but like it takes a lot of ego to do that, like a lot of ego. Mm -hmm. Hey, Olga, can I go back to something you did at the very beginning when you were reading the language? Um, yes. Because I, and it's related to a question that was asked about, like, has anybody done this assessment of, like, how much mm -hmm. money do we really need? And I just remembered that I wanted to mention the current services budget, which is also a requirement. So the governor, when he submits his budget to the legislature, is also meant to submit what's called a current services budget. And what that looks like now is basically a one-page spreadsheet in very tiny type in the executive budget book, which is like a little cute bound book. It's like a summary of the budget. It's highlight. It's basically like his speech, you know. And mm -hmm. that current services budget in its current form, not just Governor Scott, Governor Shumlin also did this, is basically like, here's what it would look like if we level fund everything, mm -hmm. <laughs> which we could all see on our own. We don't need that little tiny spreadsheet. Um, <laughs> but what it was meant to be when the people's budget campaign was running, the current services budget was meant to be, what would it cost to provide all of the services that are in state statute, which the state has committed to providing to the people of Vermont, if all of the people in Vermont who needed those services access those services. That's what the current services budget is supposed to be, and it's never been done, and it's in statute. Just saying. Interesting. The second thing I wanted to point out is also in the language that you read, the governor is supposed to present with his budget a revenue package. Indeed, indeed he is. And in all my years here, I think I've only ever seen one. 
<laughs> and it was very like specific to a proposal, but that's not happening either. And, mm. and, you know, I don't want to be extreme and say like the governor's breaking the law, but his no new taxes the, and not, it's not just him. It's been previous mm -hmm. governors. I'm not, I don't need to be mm -hmm. focusing on any particular governor. But when a governor says no new taxes, when they submit the budget, they are violating the statute that says they are meant to propose a revenue package with the budget to fund what they're saying they, the people of Vermont need, per all that wonderful language that you read, right? That is not happening. And even if that one piece happened, things would change dramatically. Mm -hmm. I'm always amazed at how much we get done when we we don't actually have any information to to do to inform what we're doing. <laughs> it's remarkable. Do we do we know why these these things aren't happening? I mean to to be fair, like does the governor have the staff to make this happen? Does do we know why this isn't happening basically? So what the administration says um, is that we don't need any new revenue in order to provide the services that we need to provide. Okay. And I've, you know, I've asked the question publicly and gotten that answer publicly. Then okay. if we can provide the services that we need to provide by and cut taxes. I think anyone who's like existed in any interaction with government knows that to not be true. And so that's sort of the scenario. It's also, you know, we have no accountability arm built into our legislative process. Mm -hmm. And so there are violations of statute all over the place. It's like, this is like one sort of extreme version that I think is also very helpful in the context of this conversation. But there are lots of places that statute is violated and we don't call anyone to account. And sometimes it is because of a lack of staffing. And sometimes it's because of intentional mal malfeasance. And sometimes it's because of political gamesmanship, right? So there's sort of a subset of that revenue requirement is that a fee bill is supposed to be produced um, every two years by the administration. And that wasn't happening. And so last year we actually put in the budget more details about that requirement that was already in statute about sort of a detailed fee report that we wanted. And then we got that fee report and it's still not detailed enough to act on. Interesting. And we're not even asking for a request. We're just asking for like, what are all the fees? And when was the last time they updated? And do they cover, because fees are very specific and that they're supposed to cover the thing that they are paying for basically. Right. And are they covering the costs of that fund? And it is not detailed enough to actually do a fee bill still, even though we put in statute that we needed this. And can I just mm -hmm. about taxes? Sure. <laughs> yes. So there's this refrain about taxes are too high, no new taxes, let's not raise taxes. And I just want to say that what taxes are is all of us collectively putting money into the pot that, and then that's our money and that's the state budget, right? So we're all putting our money in there and then whatever is the state budget, that's the money coming out of the pot, right? That's, it's not the only money in the pot, but it's basically the money in the pot that's in the general fund, right? And when people have this idea that like, 
I don't want my taxes to go up. First of all, if taxes went up, it wouldn't necessarily be for everyone or it wouldn't necessarily be the same amount for everyone. Like probably wouldn't be. There's a ton of tax capacity at the very high end of the income stream, right? Or the wealth stream. And there's less tax capacity at the very low end of that, right? But right now, the low end, I mean, we're pretty good in Vermont, but the low end people need the services and the high end people could help a little bit more with that. And it would be better for everyone. But if we have this narrative that like taxes are bad and, you know, we don't, nobody should ever have to pay more taxes, it's not useful. It's kind of like saying in your family, you know, like, don't put your paycheck in our checking account because I, I don't want to use that money to pay our bills, right? That's kind <laughs> of the mentality, right? And it doesn't make any sense. And also in your family, if you had a real need and you couldn't afford it, like I know in my family, we say like, how can we get some more money? And we are creative about that. We don't automatically think, well, we're gonna stop feeding our youngest child, right? Cutting right. the budget, right? We think, can we get another job? Can we sell our canoe? Can we do some lawn work for a neighbor? You know, And that's kind of what raising taxes is like, is like bringing more money into the pot for all of us. Mm -hmm. Just wanna say. I just fell in love with you, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> we have just five minutes uh in the the rest of this section what this conversation is reminding me of and i know home budgets are not equivalent to a state budget they're they have different pressures they have different funding revenues funding streams but this whole conversation is reminding me of an article i read i'll try to find it again and put it in the show notes i can't remember who published it but it was looking at every state and using the benchmark of, okay, if someone was spending 50% of their income on necessities, housing, healthcare, transportation, you know, necessities, 30% on discretionary things, and then putting 20% into savings, what would every state's minimum wage need to be or or what would the what would people need to earn to do this 50 30 20 and i found that an interesting benchmark because it it's actually kind of looking at like where your money's going and looking at the costs of each state and in vermont it was like eighty thousand dollars according to this article and that was just so eye-opening for me because it was doing it was coming from the perspective of if we were actually funding people's needs what would that dollar amount look like? And I suspect a lot of people in Vermont are not up in wages around 80,000. Yeah, so I'm just sitting with that, like what does it actually look like to fund what you actually need to do and have money for things like savings, that rainy day fund. Or folks who have much more than that, who are either putting way more money aside into savings that is then, you know, likely not a savings account or a piggy bank, but likely money that is earning more money building wealth. and building wealth or discretionary income, you know, multiple houses, um, which require you know, multiple caretaking 
can that money also be spent somewhere else that's for the good of the communities and the good of the state? Mm -hmm. When you get past that point where, you know, people are able to have discretionary money, put some money aside, then at some point, like, what is too much? What is too much for one person to be holding when other people have mm -hmm. needs? And, and could it go to, to other needs? Yes. Um, Amy, a few minutes left in, in the show, what would you like to leave listeners with? Hmm. I just would really like to encourage everyone, even though the process is imperfect and frustrating to get involved in the budget process, talk to your legislator, show up for those public hearings when you see Emily's cute IG graphic, um, sign up, say what you think, you know, even if you're not really sure, even if it feels kind of weird, you can read your testimony, you don't have to do it from memory. But the more of us that get involved, the more likely it is that the system can change. And so it's kind of like a chicken and egg. If, if we're afraid to get involved because it's too unwelcoming, it's not likely to get more welcoming. But if some of us who can manage that can come in and use our power that we have to break the door open and start making suggestions, then maybe some other people who are less comfortable can also join in eventually. Thank you. Emily, what do you want to leave listeners with? I think Amy said it. <laughs> Just like don't, wonderful. Don't I think that junior high math was really, really terrifying for a lot of people. And I don't want that to keep folks from talking about their values mm -hmm. and that's what budgets are that's what taxes are it is absolutely a way that we realize our values and our needs and we can talk about it that way we don't need to talk about it with algebra so like don't don't be scared away just because you don't like multiplying thank you Amy Schollenberger, founder of Action Circles in Montpelier. If people want to learn more about you or your organization, where can they go? Action-circles.com. Wonderful. And Emily, if people want to reach out to you. Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and you can find links to all my social media, sign up for my newsletter, get in touch via email or phone. The website login has gotten a little bit lost. And so um, it hasn't been updated in a while, but you can still find links to all those other things there. Thank you. And as always, the Montpelier Happy Hour is on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro every Friday at 2 p.m. You can also find us at our Captivate page and wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Have a great weekend, everyone. Stay warm. <laughs>